Hi, this is Chris Osborne, and welcome back to the Thriving Lawyers podcast. In today's episode, I have part two of my delightful conversation with Professor Heidi Brown of the Brooklyn Law School, where she is the director of the legal writing program, and she's the author of several published books. We didn't even get to talk about those last time or her career as a professor. Uh, hang on, folks. There's so much uh, interesting stuff in Heidi's journey. Uh, we were talking during a break, and I just love uh, the, the realness of it all, the relatability of it all. And I hope there's lots of people hearing this who will draw some encouraging. I have no doubt uh, uh, there will be, as there are uh, through Heidi's work in the Legal Academy. Uh, so Heidi, where we left off, uh, you had just taken a kind of a leave of absence from your brand new job in New York, starting to do some healing, some work on yourself to just really grieve the process of everything you had been through, all the transitions, losing a a, a almost you know lifelong relationship from for most of your adult life, uh, new city, new job, new responsibilities, everything. Uh, so catch us up on, and then 9-11 happens, you're diverted to Newfoundland. Uh, if you didn't listen to episode one, folks, go back and check it out. It's really uh, just uh, uh, edge of your seat type stuff, at least it is for me. Um, so what was that like then? You, you, you're coming back to a different America, sort of, as you come back in and you're a different person. Catch us up on what that was like and where things went from there. When I got back from Newfoundland, it, it was interesting. We had to fly, the, the passengers had to fly back to Germany to get back in the United States. And so when I finally got back to New York, my the grief over 9-11 sort of supplanted my grief over my marriage, my yeah. marital situation, which was an interesting shift. I realized how lucky I was to be alive and it motivated me to do something with myself and, and stop sort of wallowing and in, in regret and, and shame wow. and difficult emotions. So I did, I, I did not go back to the law firm. Um, I decided I was going to take another month or two to figure out professionally what I was going to do. Okay. I started writing. I did a lot of, of reflective writing to process my own emotions about 9-11 and, and living, I was living in Chelsea, Manhattan at the time. So we were okay. every day seeing the trucks uh, carrying the debris and, and just the, oh, wow. that the volunteers and, and all the amazing people were doing down at the site. But while that was happening, I started writing my very first legal textbook. I wanted, I, I got this idea. I wanted to write a book for first year attorneys that explained things in a way that might be helpful. It was the dumb question. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's so many manuals out there for lawyers, mm -hmm. but times when you're a new lawyer, you don't even understand what those manuals are saying. So yes. Yes. Six years or almost seven years of experience I'd had at that time in two different firms, the boutique litigation firm in Virginia, and then my nine or 10 months of experience in the big law firm. Yeah. And, and break down litigation, federal litigation into steps that a, a first year attorney could understand. And so I started right. writing that book, but, but then Two months into that, I thought, okay, I can't be this bohemian New York writer artist <laughs> forever. I want to be? I have to actually get a job. <laughs> right, and you had you had not taught even as an adjunct prior to that. You hadn't. No, I actually had never taught, taught a class. Taught anything, okay. But I, I and I never really had thought about teaching, but I liked writing. I liked explaining. I had mentored summer associates at the first firm, and I had sure. mentored junior associates even as a fifth or sixth year associate, but I'd never taught a class. 
And well, I, I love I, I love the practical aspect of what you're talking about because I remember having the same feeling when I finished at UVA, year behind you, landed a small law firm doing insurance defense litigation. They're like, okay, go draft an answer to that complaint. And I'm like, right. um, how would that go? Um, <laughs> what would that look like? I read about the rules about an answer and I did, you know, I did actually okay in Civ Civ Pro, but but we didn't draft a, a thing. And no. so I'm like, do I say admitted or when do I say admitted for lack of information, sufficient to form a belief, blah, blah. I mean, there was so much that was like, and it was kind of like, okay, we need this. And I'm like, and what would that need to look like? Because I could write an appellate brief, but that wasn't the majority of what you did. You're so right. I mean, the first time I had to draft interrogatories, I had to go look up what the word interrogatory meant. Oh my <laughs> and the first time I had ever sat in a deposition room was when the firm sent me to St. Louis to defend my first deposition. To, I had wait, no idea to defend. You had not observed a deposition when you had to defend. Right. Oh my that, gosh. That is just backwards training. That so is. I think I maybe had seen that. one or two when I when I defended my first one. I think I did defend before I took one at least. But I at least had, had had seen sort of what the rhythm and flow was and had a little bit of prep. Although I will say at the second job I had, I had a partner kind of trying to coach me on a deposition and giving me advice that I later found out was just actually dead wrong um, and, and, and backwards. Uh, but that's another story. Anyway. I agree. I got bad advice on how to how to negotiate a scheduling order with opposing counsel. I I was taught just disagree with everything they say. If you want nice. trial and and if they want trial in six months, you want it in two years. If they want it in two years, you want it in six months. And I thought that is terrible advice. We that have makes to do my the head spin. That. <laughs> yes, that's so inefficient. And yes, how is the client being served with that? I mean, I you agree. know, it's just awful. Gosh. So my my first book was called Fundamentals of Federal Litigation, and but I was writing it right after nine eleven. I started writing it, but then okay. I needed a job. So a, a good friend of mine who had worked with me at the first firm started his own firm, and he okay. knew I could write, and he needed a brief writer that he didn't have to train. Ooh. Okay. So he hired me. This was way before remote working environments. I was about to he say you're, you're predating uh, all yes. of the Zoom and <laughs> online hybrid type stuff for sure. I got to work from New York from my apartment for about six years um, for him, and the firm was in Virginia. So, okay. but then things got busy, and I would have to go fly around taking depositions because, as you probably remember from construction law, sure, our cases sure. were kind of all over the country. They weren't local; they were everywhere. And, and you had high stakes federal stuff. court. Based yeah, you on had high stakes stuff with big players, big development projects, and stuff. Yeah. Yes. So for the first six years of that arrangement, five or six years of that arrangement, I worked from New York. But then we had a huge power plant litigation out in California. And okay. I was in a different relationship, a new relationship, long another sure. long-term relationship. And I call this the Great West Coast Experiment because to, <laughs> to pitch in on the case, I sort of volunteered to go live in California for a while because a lot of our depositions and discovery were out there. And and the guy I was in a relationship with had a cool job opportunity in California. So okay. we drove, we road tripped across country with our oh my dog. Gosh. And so I call it the Great West Coast Experiment. And sure. I got I got amazing things out of I, I missed the East Coast. So I gave five years of my life to the West Coast. But the okay. major thing I got out of that experiment was my teaching career. Okay. How did that happen? So I was working on the power plant litigation, but I had joined a gym and 
a lady at my gym said, hey, Chapman University Law School in Orange County, California, is looking for a legal writing professor. I know that you, your expertise is sort of in legal writing. You should apply for the job. So this is another great learning wow. experience and pivotal moment. I applied yeah. for the job, went through all the hoops that you jump through to become a full-time faculty member, and I yes. did not get the job. So I came oh. in second, came okay. in second. I, I recently Fast had a similar experience. I won't I won't say anything about that, but I, I'm feeling you right now. <laughs> Fast for well, I've I have hope and good news for you because August twenty-fifth of two thousand eight or whatever year it was. Yeah. The Friday before the new semester is starting. Yeah. The dean of the law school calls me or the vice dean and says, Hey, we have too many students. We need another legal writing professor. Can you start on Monday? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh wow. And I said yes, even though I had no syllabus, I'd never taught anything, I had no textbook, I didn't know what I was doing. I said yes. Wow. Wow. And that I was, was brave. I was still practicing for the firm. So at the because I couldn't leave that. And so I was trying to do both at the same time, which I don't recommend anybody. It's very time consuming. But I walked into my first law school classroom on that Monday, and luckily my colleagues shared their syllabi. And, oh, sure, and sure. They're like, here, was, we'll, we'll look you up. Don't worry. We'll make you look like you actually yeah. might know what you're doing. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Just fake it till you make it. But I was terrified. And I'm actually not the fake it till you make it girl because I can't fake it. My face turns red. Um, That's right. You have the blushing tell, as we talked I about I have last blushing time. tell. And I forgot, too, how significant that was that you said yes because you didn't like the moot court, didn't like the on your feet stuff. You wanted to just do the writing, yes. let me and my research and writing happen. So what was that like to say yes to, yes, I'll be in front of the class all the time? It was... At first, it was terrifying, and but I would, again, just like law school, I would walk into the classroom with my binders of class notes and, and my class plans, and I was super prepared, but I had a lot of self-doubt because I thought, and the students were so smart, you know, law students ask a ton of questions. And oh, I, yeah. I thought at the time, and now 14 years later, I realized how wrong I was, but at the sure. time, I thought, I have to know the answer to every question or I'm going to look like a fraud. Right. And so I tried to fake it and that was t terrible and it didn't work. And I learned throughout that first year of teaching that it's so much better to say, huh, you know, I, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that question. Let's yes. look it up and use it as like a research uh, lesson. It's great. Yes. It, because that's, that's what you're trying to teach them to do anyway. And it's like, yeah, we, you've come up with a new angle. We need to explore this. And that's yes. what we do as lawyers all the daggone time. Absolutely. And and sometimes I would try to answer the question. And if I got it wrong, I would make sure the next class I would come back. I mean, I didn't get it wrong a ton. I don't want you to think I'm a terrible professor. No, no, I know what you're saying. <laughs> but yeah, I would the use The ordinary it human way. amount. The ordinary yes. human amount of wrongness, which we all experience sometimes. Definitely. And it, and it, it taught, I, I felt like I was teaching my students intellectual humility. We can say we don't know everything. We can admit when we make mistakes. We can correct those mistakes. We yes. can explore different ways of solving problems. And so that was, I realized in that first year, even though obviously I made mistakes as a new teacher, that yeah. I loved teaching. I love listeners teaching. can't see us, but I'm doing like a, a happy dance. <laughs> like you're, you're resounding, you're, you're sounding so many concepts that are so helpful. They've been part of what my work in the continuing legal education work has been about. My partner, in my business is a former lawyer turned mental health therapist. And we've been trying to, 
to to normalize that kind of conversation of oh, I love that word intellectual humility that you used and like no this job is not about knowing all the answers it's it's often in fact that's that's dangerous if you think you know all the answers you need to be careful versus having that you know I, I think I've done this before but this could be different that curiosity and humility is powerful it was and a then, really so you discover yeah so you discover it was a really eye opening experience. Mm-hmm. So then you discover in the process, you are enjoying the, the teaching about it. And what about it grabbed you? What was, when did you have that moment that you're like, oh man, this is my thing? The students are just incredible. I mean, not only just the classroom dynamic, which was great, but seeing them evolve as legal writers. And, and what I noticed over that first year, which is what led into my, my books, is that my most creative problem solvers, my most thoughtful legal writers, my, they, they would come up with the coolest ideas were the quietest students. They were wow. not the students with their hands in the air. Right. Because I grade anonymously. Most, a lot of legal writing professors grade anonymously. So yeah. the student, yeah. students write with pseudonyms. And when I did the big reveal, I kept seeing that my top performers in the class, I had small sections, but my top two or three students every time were the quietest students. Wow. And then they came to me and would confide to me I'm scared of the Socratic method. I'm scared of being cold called. I'm, I don't want to try out for moot court, even though I, I can probably do it, but I don't want to do it. Right. That showed me, oh my goodness, these students are me. Yes, yes. <laughs> and nobody, I didn't know that I could ask for help or nobody gave me the kind of advice that was helpful. So I thought right. maybe I could do that for them. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. And it got me researching quiet quietude, you know, introversion, yes, social anxiety, which is completely different from introversion, obviously, but what right, is shyness? Right. What is social anxiety? How does that play into the law school classroom? Can we as educators and the profession do a better job of, of making sure that quiet individuals who have incredible ideas, yes. and incredible minds and, and valuable offerings to the profession, can we do more to help them? Yes understand they belong, but also amplify their voices authentically without taking it until they make it. (laughs) Yes. And I want to underscore how groundbreaking this was. I remember when your book came out, I remember saying like, nobody's thinking like this. And in my experience, I taught law school for a little while and I've been doing CLE for a long time. And this is a whole different way of looking at it because what is heralded, a lot of our listeners are going to be lawyers who have been to law school and all, but what's heralded is quick on your feet, the, you know, the, they don't, let's put it this way. They don't make Netflix dramas, TV shows, or movies about the lawyer who's doing the research and writing. Maybe they'll do occasionally, oh, I found a great case, sir. But, you know, by and large, what's celebrated is the upfront, the performance aspect of it. And candidly, that was more me. I'm more of an extrovert by nature. Give me a crowd. I like to talk. Give me a mic, all that. Um, and I wrestle, you know, with when I have to write something, okay, I can do it and I'll, I'll do it, but I'd rather be in front of people. But both those skill sets are huge. Neither one could I do without in the practice of law. Um, and, and finding where people, um, have a lane. And there's some people like, uh, I remember at, at my law firm, I'll tell a quick story. There was a, a small time period where I was in charge of the litigation department. They called me litigation department chair. It meant nothing. It was a small litigation department. It was about seven or eight of us. It was just make sure we have meetings, you know, and talk about, are we marketing? Blah, blah, blah. It was not like I was running stuff. But one of the few things I did was 
I brought in a bunch of knives from my kitchen and we looked at them and we said, you know, how are, what are these knives? You know, they're all used for cutting, right? But you know, if I, if, if I'm giving you an apple, do you want this one? And I hand them a butter knife. They're like, well, really? No, you know, okay. Well, you know, you're, you're cutting through bread. Do you want this one? I hand them, you know, just like a little paring knife. Well, no, there, even though we're all knives in litigation, some of us might be the serrated edge. Some of us might be the smooth, long fillet thing. Wonder what could we look at that and see? And we talked about, we had this great conversation. We realized we had one guy who was the TRO man. Like if you had to go somewhere and things were on fire, he loved that. He would be engaged. He would be on. If you needed a complaint drafted to start something, he's not your guy. And I'm like, that's kind of like me. There was somebody else who's like, please don't ever send me anywhere on an emergency basis. But if you need to draft things and make sure they're moving forward and keep up deadlines, that's your girl. And it was, I think, I don't know what we did with it. We didn't like change jobs, but we at least recognized, oh, let's think about differently about who we use for what pieces and we might can serve our clients better. But you're doing this on this massive level and connecting with these students. So how did that go? They, they start coming to you and appreciating that. How did that turn then into the first book? It took a little bit of time because I, I, I also didn't really understand law school hierarchy and structure at all. Oh, <laughs> yes, there's that. I did not understand it. So I had all these ideas and I'm like, I want to try these 20 things. Um, so I had to learn about the process of, of writing and producing what is called scholarship. I, I actually yes. didn't know that term. I, um, I'll admit I was not on law review at University of Virginia Law School. I I didn't know what it meant to write a law review article, et cetera. Right. So I... While I taught it, I taught at Chapman for three years, and I really got to know my students and understanding oral argument, anxiety, et cetera. At the time, I was really missing New York City. New York had gotten into my system, so I was was ready to move home. So I applied for a job uh, at New York Law School in Tribeca, and I got hired to be part of this amazing new program they designed back back in 2011 called Legal Practice. And they pulled 15 professors who had diverse practice backgrounds. And I I moved back across country. And when I... When I did that, I think I think the last year I was at Chapman, though, um, Chapman was really supportive. Even though I was a legal writing person, had never written before, they gave me a summer research stipend to write my first article, which was nice. called The Silent But Gifted Law Student. And, and I was looking into the science behind helping the introverted students. Okay. That started at Chapman, thanks, thankfully, to their summer stipend uh, support. I moved back to New York. I, I joined this legal practice program at New York Law School. And then I really dove headfirst into the wow. research on introversion. And I started doing workshops at the law school about all the research I was reading about, because um, I, you know, obviously I've shared, I grappled with public speaking anxiety. I yeah. found this awesome book, the only helpful book I'd ever found on it by a woman named Ivy, Na- Ivy Neistat. And she wrote a book called Speak Without Fear. And it was all about the physicality of anxiety, not, Ooh, okay. not the fake until you make it stuff. It was like, What's going on in your physical body? Um, yes. what, do you, what negative messages are you telling yourself? And so how does started, that show up? How does that show up in your yes. body? Which, of course, is not a topic that we encountered in law school of like, oh, you're a physical being having a physical somatic experience. That was nowhere. And if anybody had started talking like that, quite honestly, I would have said, y'all are nuts and you know, <laughs> gone back to reading my well, constitutional law book. You just use the word somatic. Yes, there's this whole body of research called somatic intelligence. And and yes. I like, at the time I was studying emotional intelligence, 
but it led me into somatic intelligence. Yes. So fast forward, I, I worked at New York Law School for four years, okay. and then the director position at Brooklyn Law School opened up. Okay. So not to delve into law school hierarchy, but I was never eligible for tenure track at any of that, the first two schools. Um, okay. But at, when the director position opened at Brooklyn Law School, I was open, I was eligible for tenure track and nice. I was publishing. I, by that point, I think I'd written maybe three or four articles and I'd written not only the litigation manual, but a legal writing textbook as well. Okay. But what I'm really excited about is <laughs> when I accepted the job at Brooklyn Law School, at the same time, I also got my first contract from ABA to publish a book called The Introverted Lawyer. Yes. And so wow. I spent a year writing that book, The Introverted Lawyer, which is still my favorite book, based on the articles that I'd written about the quiet. Yes. Kind community. of compiling it into more of a resource. A uh, yes. For the listeners, uh, I'm a big fan of a podcast called Smartless. I don't know if you ever listened to it. I can't remember if we talked about it, but they always explain stuff for listeners who might not be as familiar with the lingo, but for anybody out there... Um, Law school law review articles are published in journals. Every law school has at least one, several. But uh, what Heidi's talking about is taking you know some of that base work, but turning into more of a book like you would see on the shelf, or you can order from the ABA, and you should. It's very, uh, and you can get it on Amazon too. But it's more of a, a practical guide for the actual either a lawyer or a law student who is exactly. is like, oh, that might resonate with me. Exactly, because the articles are really were read by law professors at the time. So I, I was writing the articles with an eye toward here's how to, how you a professor could help our quiet students. Yes, and not just tell them just do it. You know that great Nike slogan, but that's what I heard all the time. Just do it. Just practice. You'll be fine. That well, didn't. I, I had a a professor, and if you would have had this professor at at, uh, at UVA, and I will not name him, but I remember him saying, "Oh, come on, at least make a noise like a lawyer." And I'm like. <laughs> I just, that doesn't sound like helpful advice to me as, as no. I look back. And when I taught law school for, I'm like, I'm not going to do it that way. I don't think right. that's right. So the, you're absolutely right that the book turned into this practical, it's actually seven steps. It's, it's, um, it's funny. Cause I think I had like 10 steps and, and my editor's like, I think you only really need seven. <laughs> so I, okay. Okay. I cut it down to seven steps about how we can use mental reflection and physical reflection to step into performance moments authentically. So it's all about wow. highlighting the strengths that introverts bring to the profession because they get kind of overlooked, yes. but also because we don't have the luxury of just sitting in our quiet spaces, not talking to anyone. Right. We have to amplify our voices. The, the seven steps are how we can amplify our voices authentically using our introverted gifts, not and pretending I love that. that we're extroverts. I love that because you're not saying, hey, go find a library bookworm job and hide away and you'll be fine. You're saying, right. if you want to do more than that, you can. Here's how to be true to yourself in doing that and leverage the unique gifts and strengths that you bring which I think is genius because it's saying you can do more. You don't have to, but if you want to actually function as who you are in this world, particularly if you are doing litigation, maybe one day you're tired of writing the briefs and you want to appear before the court and you know stand up for what you've done, the way to do it, laying it out. That's beautiful. Definitely. Because I don't want law students or lawyers to feel like they, they are pigeonholed into one type of law or one type of practice because people have told them, they have a certain personality type. Any personality right. type can do any aspect and and type of law 
once we get to know ourselves and understand how we can best function. And to me, that's it's different for everybody. In, yes. in researching the new books, I came across this, this cool athlete concept called, um, it, it's by a Russian sports psychologist named Dr. Yuri Hannon, H-A-N-I-N. Yes. He designed, he developed this concept called individual zone of optimal functioning. It's IZOF, yes. I-Z-O-F. And, and he says athletes are not one size fits all. Every athlete, even, even if you pick one sport, every yeah. athlete in that sport has a different zone of optimal functioning based on their emotions. Some yes. people can be really motivated by anger. Other people cannot perform when they're angry. Right. Um, other people Some of them are like ice water. Some of them are like always cool. And others are the ones, you know, come on and, and yes. yelling at their, you know, let's get into it. And you need, you know, all those components really. And we need to be able to look at ourselves and not, not pretend, but actually take the time to analyze ourselves emotionally, cognitively, and physically, somatically to use your word. Yeah. Because if we get, to, and I, this is why I want law students to get a little touchy feely about this stuff. Cause if they can yes. really get to know themselves, they'll understand how to set themselves up to perform at their best, whether it's in the classroom, yes. whether it's in an oral argument, whether it's on an exam, on the bar exam, in an interview, and we can toggle ourselves in and out of that optimal zone. I, I like the toggling idea and I love just, and it seems more commonsensical now, but, but especially as you've sort of pioneered a lot of this, it's a radical concept because I know, I think I came out of law school and even into law practice, like what's well, kind of one size fits all. Don't we all do kind of the same thing and need to look the same way doing it. And here's the, all the people who are the best at it seem to look this way. And it took me a long time to realize actually that I was a good litigator. I litigated for a long time, but I'm actually more of a peacemaker and a mediator. I like discovered mediation and collaborative line. I'm like, Oh, that's, I like that better. I can do that other stuff, but I think I'm being more true to myself if I do this uh, and another digression. But when I'm teaching and when I started doing presentations, I'm like, I'm alive in a different way when I'm doing that sort of thing than when I am arguing a summary judgment motion or whatever. And I think the opportunities to pause and do that are few and far between if you just kind of go with the way that things flow, what's it been like to bring these concepts? So you wrote, you wrote the introverted lawyer and then the detangling fear in law. What's it been like to bring those concepts into the law school realm where fear and all these different styles are, are, are very, very present and kind of in a way on display, you almost have like a little lab. It's been wonderful. I mean, I do, there, I do, do still experience resistance <laughs> from I would the imagine. traditionalists, but the sure. students, I always make this stuff optional and it, it's always incredible to me when students opt in to take a different approach to their own learning and, and to right. really understand how they learn, what, what obstacles get in their way of learning, but also how they can, I like the verb untangling because my yes. whole life I was told, just face your fears, just do something every day that scares you, conquer your fears. No. <laughs> that's too simplistic. That's that. I've tried um, doing that. Yeah. I've some, tried some, of those fears are, some of those fears are nasty and they show up in ways work. you're not, you're not planning on um, them showing up. It, it just doesn't work to pretend fear is no big deal. And it also doesn't work to act like some people say, well, fear is good for you. It's a great motivator for mm. me. That doesn't work. Uh -uh. No, so I need to that. take my fear and pick it apart and, and untangle maybe the slightly good parts of it, if there are any, from the toxic parts. 
And if you don't do that, the fear is never going to go away. Um, I don't even like the messages. I know they're supposed to be empowering, but a lot of people are like, do it scared. You know, like that has a a really detrimental mental health effect on a lot of people. And I'm one of them. So instead I'm a huge advocate for let's, let's, let's sit down like, like with that partner I mentioned, let's sit down and be open and honest about fear, understand the science behind it, how it affects our body. Yes. And then understand what is really happening when we're afraid. It's it's not really about the deposition or the judge or the oral argument or the opposing counsel. It's about something much deeper. And unless yes. you're willing to go there, it's nothing's going to change. And would you say, because um, this is an area of sort of interest that I've been doing some research in, partly based on my different background and experiences I've had, but would you say that sort of exploring your story, kind of your family of origin, but not in just like a Freudian psycho way, but but exploring the formative events of not just law school, but your childhood, the things that have, you know, made you who you are is a piece of that. Like, why do, you know, some of us get more excited about being on the stage? My wife says, that's my worst nightmare. I don't want to be on the stage. We actually took an improv class a few months ago for her to kind of stretch out a little bit. She's like, that's my nightmare. And I'm like, that's my happy place. But why? There were reasons for that from our background that she had a terror and I had a please. That looks fun. Um, Would you say that's a piece of it is sort of getting to know yourself and where you've come from and what's formed you? Absolutely. It's and it's hard to do. And and but it's so important. I mean, for me, I had to especially with the negative mental soundtrack that I have. I yes. had to go back and, and reflect on where that started. And, and I have yes. vivid memories of fifth grade, you know, <laughs> this stuff. And then this is not the, the book I mentioned by Ivy Neistat. She actually says, this is not a blame game. We're not going back to right. call up our parents or our teachers or coaches right. and say, you ruined my life. Instead, it's, it's information. And we get to now decide yes. in 2023 that, we may have internalized those messages decades ago, but we can reject them and eject them and delete yes. them now. Yes. And, and nobody's going to do that for us. So we well, have and, to and, do it ourselves. Yes. And with what we're learning about trauma as well and how traumatic experiences are literally stored in the body. I know you're they a fan are, from the book of, we're both fans of Bessel van der Kolk. Yes. The body keeps the score. Trauma, traumatic experiences get stored in our body, fragmented in different places. And uh, when we run into them is sort of when we, we run into a piece of them or whatever. And part of what, at least my experience has been in sort of therapy and story type experiences is we get a chance to reintegrate. We get a chance to look back on those experiences and sort of give them their right place. Um, I'll share a quick anecdote. I remember when I was starting to do some, some counseling and, and therapeutic unpacking of sort of my story, the past, I remember a close relative saying to me, why do you want to dredge up the past? Why are you trying to go dig back in the past? I said, I'm actually not trying to dig up the past. I'm trying to find out why it keeps showing up and biting me on the ass because mm-hmm. I'd like to not, not have that happen. And I think that's a piece of why, you know, I, a very mild mannered, calm looking person could lose my shit sometimes, excuse me, and, and <laughs> act like an idiot. I'm like, that doesn't feel like me, but boy, it was really coming from somewhere. Probably need to unpack that. But you learn, yes. I love your, your use of the phrase of data. You get data about yourself that can be helpful. And you can say, hey, I'm going to run into this situation. Again, one, one of our workshops actually comes from a time period when I was in practice, I kept running into these older men and having these battles in litigation where there was a lot more intensity and 
anger on my part, I would end up yelling or kind of hanging up the phone or just getting out of my head. I'm like, what is going on? It keeps happening. Um, and then I realized, well, in all these stories, there's one common character and it's me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was worried I'm running to all these terrible people, I'm only, but I'm there every time. Maybe I can, I can't control how they act or what they're going to do, but what can I do to, to show up differently myself? Yes, I completely agree. It, it, and it's to, for me to do that, I have to do it through writing and, and through okay. journaling. And I also put myself in boxing lessons because for me, the somatic aspects of the fear and the anxiety and the blushing and all that is affects me emotionally. And even yeah. in the boxing lessons, I, I joke with my boxing trainer because I do one-on-one -on -one training with a, a former professional boxer. Oh, and wow. I tell him every session is like a philosophy lesson because... <laughs> It, when I'm struggling with my breathing, he helps me realize that it has nothing to do with the act activity we're doing right now. It's it's right. this fear of running out of air that I had 20 years ago when I yes. was standing up in front of a court or, or in high school or yes, in, yes. as a kid. So it's so brilliant the way that the things that we can do and study about our minds and our emotions and our bodies now as lawyers, as yes. law students, lawyers, yes. professors, judges, paralegals, court reporters, whatever contributor to the profession, because I think this applies to everybody. Yes. If we take the time to do that, we can. it can change our whole approach to our day-to-day -day job. Well, that's what I've been learning about how the mind and body are way more connected than I ever realized. I was sort of, because of my story, kind of became very, you know, analytical, good student, succeeding in school, became my cachet. That was, I wasn't the athlete. I wasn't great with the girls. I was everybody's best friend, you know, and all that. So I wasn't finding success, but I academically, I could do some calculus, you know, and, and be on the debate team and all that. But it was a very cerebral type place to be. And I heard a great speaker recently talking about how, you know, law draws a lot of cerebral analytical left brain types. Some of it, we make people that way. Some of it, it draws it. But in a lot of cases, that's what some of us have adopted as our way of not necessarily being as present for the painful or difficult things like I'm sad, that hurts. I don't like being rejected, all that. We're like, I'm going to go over here and be smart. And, and that it, it seems to work for a while. And it worked for me, I would say, for a while until it didn't. Right. <laughs> and, and then you have to sort of figure out what else can I do? My brain and the left side of my brain is not going to get me through everything, even in the practice of law. Because that was the other thing. I used to avoid the practice of family law because I'm like, I want to be in, oddly enough, construction law where everybody's rational and makes thoughtful decisions all the time. That was not true in my experience. Sounds like it probably wasn't for yours either. No, it definitely wasn't. <laughs> yes. Lots of um, fighting. Lots of fighting. Yes. So Heidi, I want to be mindful of our time here. Uh, do you have a few more minutes so we can go? I want to ask a little bit about, uh, I, I knew from the, the boxing story from The Flourishing Lawyer. Can you say a little bit more about how the latest book, The Flourishing Lawyer, came to be? Because if I understand correctly, you wrote that at another pivotal time in the history of America and New York, i.e., pandemic 2020, yes. 2021. I had right before the pandemic, um, I, I got tenure. So I was, um, I, that was a journey, a pivotal moment. And at the same time I had applied for the master's in applied positive psychology program yes. at university of Pennsylvania. And I got accepted at the same time that the pandemic hit and I had to shift my entire writing program on oh, online gosh. so we can oh, deliver gosh. our academic curriculum remotely. 
So what I thought was going to be kind of a calm time in my professional life, because I'd finally gotten tenure, it was not. Right. It was the opposite. <laughs> oh, no. Let me just take um, on something else completely. Oh, my goodness. Um, and at the same time, I had pitched a, a third book concept to my publisher, ABA, which they accepted. So I had the first year of the pandemic, I've, I don't think I've ever been busier in my life. Wow. But the book, I, I decided to write a book about well-being through a performance lens, because a lot of the things that you and I've spoken about, it's, it's not, I don't want well-being. Sometimes when I talk about well-being to well-meaning colleagues, they think I'm just yes. talking about meditation and yoga and I'm not, yeah. I'm talking about athletic performance as, a, as yes. an attorney, because I think we are athletes. We're scholar yes. athletes or scholar performers if the athlete model doesn't work for some people. And elite so athletes book, do this stuff. I remember somebody hooking me. Uh, we were doing a, a teaching a boxing exercise with, with a psychologist lawyer named uh, Jan Newman. And she said, you know who else uses a breathing exercise like we're doing? Um, snipers, Navy SEALs. <laughs> you know, it's like, just, yes. just so you know, people who are tough and have really important stuff to do, um, they are actually paying attention to their breathing. They are. And so it's not a bad idea for you too as well. It's not woo-woo just for the people with the crystals and, you know, hookah pipes right. and stuff. So the book goes into that. It, it kind of looks at the concept of character and fitness to practice law, but through a well-being lens. Like, what does yes. it mean to cultivate our character over a lifelong journey? What does it mean to be multidimensionally fit? And it yes. goes into 10 different dimensions of fitness, but it starts with the physical one, the somatic awareness level of fitness. And I love that you start there because that is literally the opposite of law school. Because I know, <laughs> I mean, and again, we were at the same law school and, and what we got socialized into was you work hard, but you party hard. We had Feb Club where everybody goes and you you know drink a lot during February and you just sort of, we start socializing people. And there's, of course, great studies by Larry Krieger and Sheldon about this, but we basically say, this is what your life is going to be. It's going to suck and be really hard, but you can party hard and blah, blah, blah. But that, other than that, there's not that much saying, hey, are you cultivating your physical health? And by the way, that will affect how you practice as a lawyer. I mean, I started thinking about this and doing presentations on it because I was running into it and nobody had been prepared me for that. I'm like, what is going wrong here? Um, so that's huge. I love that approach that you're starting with the body um, and then seeing how it all integrates together. Say more about that. It does. So the, the first chapter on the physical side of it kind of sets up the rest of the book because it, it sets up what's going, you know, getting to know our physical selves, noticing what's happening to us physically, but also adopting sort of routines and rituals like an athlete would for yes. when we're noticing stress or anxiety, physical manifestations, what we can do to recalibrate. And so then the, the rest of the book, it deals with like emotional our, our emotional fitness, our social fitness, um, even a creative artistic side. And in yes. every chapter, it echoes the, the refrain from the physical chapter because we can layer all those other things on top of our physical awareness. Because for me, whenever I'm in a stressful performance moment or in, in that moment in the classroom yes. when I don't know the answer or I'm in a stressful faculty meeting or I'm having a conflict with somebody, the physical always grips me first and I have to okay. remind myself every time, okay, wait, you've prepared for this. You know what you're doing. Yes. Practice what you preach. You know, you have tools for that. Yes. And it all, it, I mean, it doesn't always go perfectly, obviously, but it, it really helps maintain, you know, in the book. And I learned this at, at Penn and the, in the master's program that 
that well-being is two-pronged. It's not just feeling good because we're not always going to feel good. This, right. The most important prong is functioning well. And, yes. and so we set up systems so we can function well even when we're stressed and anxious or sad or feeling yes. the trauma kind of re- reviving itself. That, so it's was helpful for, that was helpful for me to learn. And I've got lots of friends who, who've done the map and people whose work I respect. Ann Bradford with the Institute for Wellbeing and Law and um, uh, Hollowell at Penn. There's some great folks doing this stuff. And two things I want to underscore kind of for our listeners that I think are important. One is I love how you have, have positioned this as there's not like a, a perfection that you achieve or a nirvana state that you reach. And like, you're never having to do the things you're talking about. You are continually having to practice these things and put them in place. And if you think you get it down, here comes a curveball. Here comes a challenge. And you, you're learning to be able to adapt. And again, that's like an athlete, like a fighter. They can't train you for everything. But I love that mindset. It's not like, hey, be this perfect, you know, Gandhi type, you know, woo-woo type thing. Um, I, I love that piece of it. And I love how uh, just real you are about it, that you still have to, you know, it, it's not going to work all the time, even if you're working. You, you got a master's. You're a master now, right? Um, but the other thing that you explained that, that I had to find out too, was when I first heard, oh, positive psychology ceiling, I thought, oh, that is that like Norman Vincent Peale, be happy and blah, blah, blah. But it is way more robust than that because you can't just be happy when bad stuff happens. I, I, I tell a story in some of our workshops one time, there's a lot of context to it, but I, I actually had a, a case where I filed a motion for summary judgment against my own client. Like, like my client filed a motion to get summary judgment against us. Because we were getting taken down for a ride. Somebody uh, was saying, you violated these statutes, we're going to get a bunch of money. And we wanted the judge to say, hey, yeah, they violated the statutes, but the, the remedy is only this. It's not what you think it is. So I literally asked for summary judgment against my own client to shut up this craziness. And we lost. And I'm like, how has that happened? And I remember just feeling like a sledgehammer hit me in the face. And from there, I went and drove and like sat in a park and stared at like a wall of trees. And I didn't know what to do. But something in me knew, like, I can't just go back and sit at my desk and start working on the next case or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what just happened here? I thought I had this genius moved out with this person and it did not go well. Um, anyway, a side diversion. But I love that, you know, positive psychology equips you to face hard stuff. It means, hey, you know, be sad when you're supposed to be sad. Grieve. That's a piece of it. Is that fair? It's totally fair. And, and just a most recent example, I, I, at the end of the semester that we just finished, I was going to treat myself with this trip to Rome when, and I was going to grade my papers and, and work on a new writing project over there. And day three of my three week winter break, I got COVID. And oh gosh. I was so bummed out because I felt like, you know, I've done all the quote right things I and and I set myself up for this this time period to really tend to myself. It's Rome's my favorite place in the world. I do my best writing there. I wrote my fear book there, and I got sick and I was sick for nine days. And none oh my of gosh. my stuff, none of my usual routines were working. I I, oh, wow. I do you know Julia Cameron, the author of The Artist's Way. She she has yeah, this technique yeah, called morning pages. I do my okay. morning pages every day. I exercise every day. I you know, do a lot of other things to help my mental health. None of it was working. I went into wow. a really dark funk when I was, I had COVID this, this time. Yeah. And, um, and I realized, wait, that's okay. Like my body just needs to shut down for a couple of weeks. That's I'm not yeah. going to be productive for a couple of weeks. 
you're None in a different, that. yeah, you've got a different world. mix of circumstances that you've ever yeah. had and yeah. what worked before. And I love the giving yourself permission to just, hey, even though I wrote the daggum book yep. on the flourishing lawyer, I'm having a not so flourishy day. I did. I had a really hard mental time, mental and emotional time with it. And I was mad at myself because I thought I should know what to do. And I yes, thought, no, yes. you know what? I know what to do. I know that there's a lesson in this and I just don't know what it is yet. And yes. I still don't know. I'm home now. I'm getting gearing up to teach. I don't know what the lesson from Rome was for me, but I know there is one and it'll yes. come to me when it's supposed to come to me to sure. sound a little woo woo, but it'll come to me. Well, I love it. And I love this conversation. I could go on forever because it's it's actually helpful for me with lots of different things I'm thinking on. I'm realizing how hard on myself I can be when I don't function well, when I don't do the things I know to do. An example this week, I, you know, my wife is traveling. I need to get in bed, but I pathologically stay up. I don't know what it is, but I like watch TV and, you know, just binge stuff. And I'm like, I can, when it, when it happens and it, it didn't happen one night, one night I got in bed at the right time. Another night I'd like off the rails and I start beating myself up and like, well, let me shame myself back into, you know, doing the right thing. And that never works. Um, it certainly never lasts. But this has been helpful to remind me of that too, that even as you're trying to get better and flourish better, you're not going to do it all the time. And that is okay. I think we're missing that or have been at least in my legal career, that's been missed a lot not everywhere. Uh, at some law firms, I had good mentors and people had a good mindset. Uh, but it's easy to forget things like that and to feel like we have to perform all the time because we're smart and we're high achievers. Yes. Yes. Well, I want to wrap there for the sake of your time. I might see if you want to come back and do an episode three sometime down the road when we have time, because there's more in the flourishing lawyer that we can get to. We didn't even get to talk about Bono and you too, and that would have been fun. My um, favorite topic. So, <laughs> exactly. So maybe we'll have uh, episode three. We'll be, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start there and see if we if we have some time, let you get started on the semester. But thank you so much for being with us. Uh, please check out Heidi's books uh, at the ABA and you can get them all on Amazon, I'm sure as well. I think that's where I got them. The Flourishing Lawyer is fantastic. And what I would commend you, uh, it's an enjoyable read. Um, if you think legal professors, law professors write stuffy, academic, wonky stuff that only other pointy-headed academic people will like, Heidi will prove you wrong because it's an enjoyable read. You'll smile, you'll enjoy it, and it's because you'll get more of what you uh, got in these two episodes of just a real person going through their life, willing to talk about it, share with other people about it, and being a light and encouragement to so many other people along the way and helping them thrive. So thank you, Heidi, so much for being with us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. We love hearing from our loyal listeners, so please feel free to email us any questions, comments, suggested topics, or guest recommendations at the following address, feedback at thrivinglawyerspodcast.com. The Thriving Lawyers Podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, a national provider of continuing legal education and professional development programs that leave participants engaged, encouraged, and equipped to pursue meaningful and sustainable change in their practices, their lives, and the organizations they work in. And by Osborne Conflict Resolution, your experienced guides through the uncharted terrain of business and family law disputes based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. Thank you.